Welcome to the Everything Early Childhood podcast designed for approved providers, nominated supervisors and other childcare leaders. This fun, lighthearted and very serious podcast features weekly episodes on strategy, advice and conversations with fascinating and inspiring people from across our sector. Join the journey and have access to the tools and inspiration you need to create high performing childcare businesses. Let's get started. Hello, friends, and welcome to this week's episode of Everything Early Childhood. My name is Lisa and I'm your host. And today we have a really special guest joining us today. Um, Her name is Angela Lockwood. She is an occupational therapist, speaker, author, advisor, podcast host herself, and most importantly, believer in the potential of all children. So we're really excited to have her join us to talk about um, inclusion in early childhood services. So welcome, Angela. Thanks so much for having me. I love that little opening. It's very snazzy. It's very fun. Yeah, we love it. We wanted something obviously upbeat, something that really yeah, yeah got you into the mood because um, we're a bit <laughs> casual and fun here at Everything Early Childhood. I love it. Thanks so much for having me. It's so nice to be able to just sit and have good, deep conversations with people about the stuff that we love to do. I just I just love these open, honest conversations. They're great. So thanks for having me. No worries. So tell us a little bit about your background and why <laughs> why occupational therapy, what interested you in the field of working with children? Well, interestingly, um, it depends on how far we want to go back, but I definitely won't go back to my early childhood. That will get really boring, won't it? But I I actually never wanted to be an an occupational therapist. I always wanted to be a journalist and uh, I love to write and I I love doing things like this. I wanted to be a TV journalist actually as a growing up. And um, it was when I was in year 12, I uh, had an accident. And if anyone's ever read any of my books, um, I, I speak about what had happened. I was hit in the head with a hockey ball and I fractured my skull uh, just before I sat my HSC. And it was interesting because um, I was playing hockey and, you know, doing everything you do when you're a kid, you know, you're into everything and, you know, you're doing your schooling, your social life, everything. But obviously in that moment, everything changed for me and um, I sustained quite a significant fracture into my skull and brain injury. And it was during that time um, I came across an OT while I was in hospital doing my rehab and uh, I went, oh, that's what I want to do. That is exactly the path I want to take. So, um, yeah, I, I was really, I don't know, it's, it's funny. I, I speak a lot in schools, um, particularly in high schools about my story and just how you never know things just come, come at you at left of field sometimes and you think you're on a certain path and then sometimes our paths change and that's what happened to me. And I came into OT world and funnily enough, um, said I never really wanted to work with kids uh, because I had spent all of my childhood working with kids. It sounds silly. We owned a swim school. And uh, so I was always had kids in my backyard and, you know, helping dad with teaching kids how to swim. And so I was sort of over kids by that stage. And then I I, uh, went overseas uh, working in Canada with kids as an OT. And I just went, Okay, I'm done. <laughs> you <laughs> Completely found it. done. Yeah. I so it's like when I say that out loud, a lot of my stories about I wanted to do that, and then someone else had a different uh, path for me. So yeah, and then ever since I've worked for 20 years working with kids. 
Oh, and I love that. And I, I, I'm a real big believer in the universe and that we all have like that defined or destined sort of path that we're following and sort of things happen to keep pushing us back to that path that we're meant to be on. Yes. And it's interesting because I, I too am a really big believer in that. And uh, when I do look back and I've told my story many times, it, you know, sometimes I go deep on it, other times I skim over it, but I do look and I think, even the times where I, you know, I had a break from working with kids, I'd had a few uh, allied health centres, so centres where I was specialising in paediatrics. So I had uh, physio, uh, sort of physio, OT, speeches, so, um, child psychologists, and um, I sort of started working, I was 25 when I started my own business um, and have never worked for anyone really since, um, only for myself. And I remember at the time thinking, um, okay, I'm not that old myself, you know, I was only 25 and a lot of people going, wow, that's a big gig to go in and straight into private practice. But I had a really good group of people around me, good team, but also I just went, I really wanted things to be different for kids. Mm. Um, back then I saw, I sound like an old woman there, but back then. Back um, in our day. In the, yeah, back <laughs> yeah. in my day. The, uh, the landscape of disability was very different to what we experience now and particularly how schools um, included kids with additional needs or disabilities were very different. You know, kids with autism, um, we didn't really or, you know, who were neurodiverse, um, there was nothing really around to support families in that. Um, and it was sort of, even there was some diagnosis of when I worked in Canada, came back here and I was like, oh, there's no, not a lot of kids here with that. And I really, it was a really different space. So one thing I you know, decided way back then is I thought I have the drive, I have the passion. Um, I'm, I really believe that all kids can do whatever they want. Um, I, really believed in, I guess, like you said in the opening in the intro, that all kids have potential. So even back then I went, right, well, I want to create spaces for these kids. I wanted to create spaces for kids to really just be the best that they can, no matter what they've got. And that's what I've done sort of since. And if I've, if I have gone off uh, tangent a little bit and gone sometimes into the adult world, I always seem to get pulled back into working with kids because I realise that's where my heart really lies. Yeah, and you find your way back into that. I love that. Yeah, and I and I love yeah. that you've had experience across multiple um, countries. Also, mm. when dealing with OT, what are some differences that you find? And I'm also curious to know what are some of those early business lessons that you learned being in business so young. Oh wow! Gosh, I could do a whole. <laughs> I know. I was just that. thinking that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess to ask your first question, the differences in in the countries. I guess. Um, and I'll say back then again, um, I really found particularly working in Canada, that was so further, much further ahead in the early intervention space. So I was working over there. Um, my role was to really bridge the gap between the education and the health sector. So, um, you know, they would have those, you know, segregated classroom for kids who had different uh, diagnosis. One of the classrooms I was working in, um, in a primary school, they had um, a classroom and it was the kids were what was classified as coded as severe behaviour. Okay. Now, even that in itself makes me feel a bit, ugh, you know, that's a bit icky to even say a kid had a code on them so they, they got put into a separate class. And uh, But my role back then was really to go, okay, how do we get the hospital system um, who have a lot of kids with different needs into mainstream settings? 
Yeah. And, um, you know, I was only, I was only very young, but I could see it really clearly that the way that it was being done wasn't okay, but it was even further ahead than what we were here in Australia. And, um, so I was really fortunate to be able to learn a really huge range of skills over there. And, um, particularly in that early intervention transition to school space, um, and then into school and how did that look for kids and families and then to be able to bring that back I I thought that was um yeah I was so fortunate to have that start yeah definitely Mm. that's awesome and I love that early on you saw that the difference between that segregation and getting them obviously involved in mainstream what are your views on that today yeah oh gosh I'm I am definitely it's interesting because inclusion's got such a a broad understanding. It doesn't have a broad definition. It just has a very broad, people see it differently depending on who you ask. And Mm. I see when inclusion work, inclusion can work really, really well um, with well-trained people, but also people who care. And it always comes back to, and a lot of people go, what do you mean teachers don't care or um, educators don't care? I go, well, actually some people don't. And some people are like, you can't say that. And I go, well, it's actually true. Some people do not believe that kids with additional needs should be in mainstream settings. People just still don't believe that. And even though they may not say it, it's the way that they communicate with the kids, the way that they behave, the way that they actually do segregate them. Um, and that's where I guess I'm always been really fortunate that I'm an occupational therapist. It's always been in educational settings. So um, I've seen um, how teachers teach. I've seen how educators are in groups and always that sort of uh, fly on the wall sometimes yeah. where I can, I have the ability to be able to observe, but not be right in the thick of it, but then sometimes be in the thick of it. So I think inclusion in mainstream settings, absolutely so many benefits. Um, I talk about this all the time on my own podcast is that inclusion isn't just about the child with um, a disability or additional needs. It actually helps everybody in that classroom. And I see it time and time again. An example of one of the programs I'm running in a school at the moment is that there's a group of um, kids who have all been diagnosed uh, with autism. So they're all neurodiverse kids, but they just... um, they're just so amazing, these young young boys, and they were having difficulties socialising in the playground. So I said, great, we've got a little girl who um, is nonverbal, so she communicates through an eye gaze machine. So I said, well, why can't we get these boys who are, have brilliant minds together in a social setting, and they're coming up now with um, doing game design for the young student who is nonverbal on the eye gaze machine. And we have kids who don't have a disability, who don't have a diagnosis in that same group, um, all coming up with, it's just this united united sort of purpose. And um, that's where I see the benefits of inclusion is when you've got uh, schools and teachers that are really passionate about learning and education, but also really care about all the kids. That's when magic really happens. And um, for the benefit of the teachers and also the other kids, because, you know, I, I could talk about this forever too, Lisa. Gosh, I could talk a lot about a lot of things forever, but when I see kids with disability in mainstream schools who are well supported, okay, that's really important to say who are really well supported um, and who are welcomed and who are seen as a really valuable part of that school community. Um, they absolutely thrive and they bring a richness to the school and all the other kids as well, their peers, they're not they're seen as just a part of the school fabric. That is what society is. 
society is full of a richness of different personalities and, you know, we're not all the same. So when kids, I believe inclusion really sets kids up for when they do leave school, they're more more tolerant, more understanding. They see people who are different to themselves no matter what that looks like as a peer. You know, they've got these just different skills than if they see kids, you know, I I know some people have never been around someone with a disability before. So they look at um, sometimes people with disabilities as so different and even maybe, and I, you know, that they don't have that understanding because they've never had that experience with them. And um, it's a, yeah, anyway, it's a very interesting, I could talk about that forever and I get really emotional about it because I see so many times the benefit of these little kids in schools, you know, that, um, and not just children who have a diagnosis either, to be honest, um, just kids who have different needs. Yeah, and I and I feel that as well. And I think I'm really passionate about that as well because I think it's it's us and our biases that we put onto children. Children are not born with those biases or those thoughts. And the you know that image that comes to my head. You know that image where you've got the two little girls. Um, you know one has darker skin, one has whiter skin, and they're like we're the same, we're twins because they're wearing the same thing. Yeah, they don't yeah. see it. No, no, and it, it is. It's I, I don't know what age it happens, and mm. I'm sure there's research that's been done, but there's like a tipping point. Um, I think in many things, actually, developmentally, there's a real tipping point where we change from that beautiful, naive, um, no, not not even naive, because there is some, um, you know, areas of life where it's good to be naive, but there's that sort of real pureness of heart um, that it does shift, and even that ability to be able to go, anything's possible, or, you know, have fun and play. Um, there are moments in our development where that all shifts, and I guess I, I really see that those early stages that we're talking about right now, they're the crucial years because that's where kids really start to form who they are, the views that they have of other people, where they fit in the world. And if we can give them these beautiful, rich uh, experiences with you know, fantastic peers and uh, I don't know, I just think we're, we're going to be preventing a lot of challenges later on in life for all people if we can get into these early years and really build um, you know, inclusive thinking and inclusivity in terms of understanding and, yeah, it's it's such an important time, you know, this age of these early childhood space, and I've seen it time and time again. Yeah, and I and I have seen it as well. And I think one of the mm-hmm. biggest things, and we just done heaps of posts about it recently as well, but one of the biggest challenges that we find in early childhood services right now is um, educators dealing with challenging behaviours in general. Really? So whether it's a disability, whether undiagnosed, because we obviously get children through those early years that may not have had a diagnosis yet, so we need to guide the families. Um, so what tips or how do you sort of start? Because, I mean, I might go a bit of a context so you and I met um you do some work with one of our beautiful services um that are one of our clients that we also work with um and so we got introduced and the work that you're doing with them is sensational and those educators at that service um and just I guess the capacity that you're doing it as well so it's not just going in and doing training you go in and you do the training with the team but you also do observation visits in real time in order to give them the support that they need so that you can see that being put into practice um so I really loved and the feedback that we've been getting from that from that service is awesome so we had to have you on because some of the strategies that you've sort of started to implement with them have been awesome and they've been seeing a lot of traction so 
what, how do you start working with an educator? Because I don't know if it's their opinion or whether it's their thoughts around what challenging behaviour is, but where, what have you been finding in our early childhood sector? Yeah, well, thank you. It's good to hear that you're getting great feedback. Uh, you know, I, I always think it's when, when, when it comes to professional development, um, that the more applicable you can make it to somebody's day-to-day life, the more they'll take it on. Um, and I think reflection is such an important thing to do when we're learning and we're trying to use different strategies and test different things. You need to have the opportunity to go, hey, did I mess that up? Or, hey, I tried it. It didn't work. Can you help me out with without feeling like you're being judged? And I think what we do a lot, particularly um, when it comes to um, disability, additional needs, um, you know, there's a lot of language that, you know, and I I even have to be really aware of it, a lot of language that isn't okay to use anymore that might have been okay to use when someone started out, you know, the educational journey. Um, And there's a lot of fear around, I don't want to say that, is that the wrong thing? So when you can say to someone, hey, I'm with you, let's work this out together, um, they don't have to worry anymore. They're just, they're not, they're not acting through fear. What they're acting through is why they went into childcare in the first place and working with kids is that sense of love of wanting to work with kids. And that's where they've got to start from, not through, am I doing this wrong? Um, but yeah, the, in terms of um, the behavioral context that you were talking about, um, one of the things I know that I, I love when I work, go into centers is that that ability to ask questions in real time. Uh, is really valuable. So, you know, one one girl had said to me, hey, um, see how that girl there is having a big meltdown while she doesn't want to eat? What, what do you think I should do? Mm-hmm. And so what we could do in that moment, I don't know anything about this little girl. I don't know if she has a diagnosis. I don't know. We can have that conversation there and then. And I could go see how she's doing that. Well, it could be because of this. What do you think? And what that does is it helps us become joint joint um, peers in the in the journey as well. So it's not me going, standing in front of the room saying, okay, educators, I know so much more than you. I'm going to be, you know, wonderful. I'm going to float into here. I'm going to tell you everything I know. Then I'm going to leave and then good luck. Um, what it does is it allows them to go see that behavior there. Um, when When you did that, did you notice this? And often without being questioned, people don't realise their own impact of that behaviour at that Mm. point in time. So see how just before the child, you know, kicked, did you notice that they did this? And they go, oh, yeah, I never thought of that. And you go, great. So what do you think next time you could do differently? And then what that, that's the real learning there, Lisa. Like that's the stuff where people, you know, it's one thing to be told. (laughs) Whether we could be told what to do, it's another thing to actually see it in practice. And um, particularly with the behaviour, I'm, I'm with you. I hear it all the time. I hear it in early childhood um, centres. I hear it at schools. It's always behaviour. And what we've got to understand is that the behaviour is because of something. And uh, kids don't just rock up one day and go, hey, I can't wait to have a terrible day today and get in a trouble all day and be really uneasy in my skin and have no kids want to play with me. Like no kid just decides that, right? Mm. So there's a reason that it's going on. I think once we can sort of find out at least the best we can what that reason is, then that's where you intervene, not always, you know, that prevention versus cure Um, sort of model that's what you want to do you want to help that child feel that they're safe and that their behavior isn't okay but we're here to support you no matter what when a child can do that then you start to see the behaviors change 
Yeah, beautiful. Hopefully that made sense just yeah. then. <laughs> no, and we did um, – so our last podcast actually was on um, Maslow, um, mm. so Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is obviously looking at that yeah. security as that foundational base. Um, mm. What can services do – are there any tips or strategies that service, cause services can do immediately to sort of as a proactive approach in, in yeah. helping children in the environment? Oh, absolutely. I guess one of the things being an occupational therapist, I have a very strong um, interest in the sort of sensory world around kids. Um, uh, But also, I guess just um, a lot of my work as if people have ever followed my stuff, I I talk a lot about finding calm. Um, I've written a book called Switch Off and Find Calm. And uh, a lot of my work is around how kids um, and adults actually manage distraction. So how do they sit and be calm within their bodies and be able to be okay in their in their space no matter what happens around them? And I think for um, for centres to directly answer your question is to really look at the environment that this child's in. Okay, now it's not the first and foremost, you might have one child that you're having some difficulty with. It might be two, it might be five. But if you can step back from all of that, I always sort of see it as that, you know, the missing brick in the wall if you can take a step back from all of it and walk in and go, what vibe do I feel? <laughs> What's the energy I feel when I step into this place? Now, this is not probably what you expected me to say, Lisa, but the very first thing someone can do, if you walk into your center and it feels chaotic, yeah. then the kids are feeling it. So if you walk into your center and you see, look at your staff, you know, look at your team, are they looking happy? Do they look like they're all tired? Are they looking, you know, disheveled? Are they, you know, love, are they on the floor with the kids or are they, you know, sitting over on a computer all the time or, you know, that that stuff is really important. The environment that we're in can really change a lot of kids' behaviours. And it doesn't mean having like a shiny, special, you know, everything. It doesn't mean that everything has to be pristine. And But what it is, and you know it when you, and I guess this goes back to our little bit of woo-woo we talked about at the beginning, Lisa, with the universe. Um, and if you, if I've lost you here and you're listening, people, uh, listeners, stick with us because I'll, I'll do it in the woo-woo language as well as the very practical language. But a parent, you think about that saying around you've, um, you can't make a second impression, like a second first impression. When you can walk into your centre and you can feel light, you can feel calm, it can feel fun, it can feel like it's a home, that's when you've got really great uh, energy for the kids but also kids don't feel chaotic in their skin and they're feeling in their environment that they're well looked after and well cared for. Now in saying that, I'm going to flip to, there are of course going to be kids because of a diagnosis or because of a neurodiversity or because of a behavioural challenge that, yeah, they're not going to be sitting there all, you know, meditating in the corner, feeling all calm. You are going to have kids then who will still struggle and that gives educators the opportunity to go okay we've got these supports around them we've got visuals for kids we're tapping into different therapy teams or you know we've we've got a set routine during the day that the kids are very well aware of um we've got quiet corners all that sort of thing but this child is still having difficulty but what i see a lot of time when i walk in um particularly you know people will come in and go hey can you give us some advice um what i often see is the opposite will happen is centres will go, we've got a child or a couple of the kids who are really struggling, what should we do with them? And I'm like, 
Okay. <laughs> First of all, let's go right back to the beginning. When you walk in, how does your centre feel? And often um, directors don't even think of that. They don't even see that. And I'll go, what experience do you think this child's having uh, when they're in that classroom? And that, those sort of conversations are really valuable. And then we go, great, now let's get into the, the child and thinking about what the child needs. Yeah, so the environment comes first. I think so, yes. Because the environment sets up, when, when it becomes, when we talk about behaviour, Mm, mm. Okay, when we talk about behaviour, um, when we talk about how children are experiencing that childcare setting, yeah, absolutely. It's the first thing to look at. And I don't mean um, it's really important when I talk about environment that it, it isn't the tables and the chairs and the, you know, you know it's like when you walk in, there are kids climbing up on uh, furniture everywhere and looking and going, well, why are they doing that? And you can't, like, and unfortunately I hear a lot because they're naughty. I'm like, well, they're not naughty. Why are they, Why is that kid climbing up on that chair when you, or that table, sorry, when they know that that's the rules? Yeah. Is it, um, is it developmentally um, a, a, a realistic expectation? You know, should, is that what a kid that age does? <laughs> that's the other thing is that sometimes we have to be careful that um, behaviour also is seen through the lens of, well, they're not doing what I tell them. Yeah. And I don't know any kid that does what you tell them all the time. My kids don't even do what I tell them all the time. So, you know, the kids, it's looking and going, well, the expectations that you're asking them or putting on them, are they realistic to their developmental stage? You know, and it's all these questions, Lisa, um, that, when 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 educators are really busy, when directors are really busy, just pressing pause and asking these questions doesn't often happen. And that's where I find the benefit of someone like me coming into a centre and like yourself, it allows them to press pause on that busyness and go, okay, what are we trying to achieve here? What is your goal for this child? What What is it that you're hoping families experience from this centre? And it's asking those questions where you can go, cool, are we, are we doing that? And sometimes they go, no, we're not actually. Yeah. And you go, great, well, let's go from there. Does that, yeah, hopefully oh, that makes no. sense. And that 100%, no, it makes so much sense. And we ask that all the time as well. It's like, okay, well, if you're doing this and the children are not listening, what is the end outcome? Like, what do you actually want to achieve here? Is it the children having fun? Is it them experiencing something? Or is it that you just want to control what that looks like as, a, as an adult? Yes, and because I find, yes. and same, you know how you said about like, because when we dig down to it with challenging behaviours, we often find, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know if you find the same thing, that it can come down to a sense of control for the adult. Mm. That the child's not listening. Okay, well, is that just in their best interest or is that you as an adult trying to control the situation? That's right. And it's such a great question. One of the um, modules in my online program, Inclusion Starts, that's for early child care, uh, for early child care educators. One of the modules is actually communication. Is communi- It's called Communicating with Confidence. Mm. And it's actually because what I find a lot of time, educators are nervous about communicating with a child when they're having a meltdown or, you know, a child that has these challenging behaviours. They don't know how to, how to, were like I guess communicate with them in a way that doesn't add to the intensity of the situation. Yep, that redness also, in their in their brain. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've got a teenage daughter, Lisa. She's gonna she's gonna hate this if she ever listens to this. But um, 
she's I remember her whole childhood, she's just been this beautiful dream and she's just this gorgeous little soul. And now as a teenage girl, sometimes things comes out of her, come out of her mouth and I'm like, I actually don't know what to say right now. <laughs> Speechless, <laughs> yes. I just go, I can either add to this or I can know my, know my position right now and just go, what I want to say to you is not going to add to this conversation. Yep. So, <laughs> so it is, it's about knowing Um how and this is the question I ask um, in all my work, and not just in uh, inclusion in schools and early child care, but is what is it that this child needs right now? That's always my leading question. Okay, is and if I was and you can actually feel when I ask that question the energy of just everything. You yeah. sort of go, oh yeah, that's actually really powerful because. Um, when you can say, when you can see a child, doesn't matter if they're having difficulty socially, if they're literally in a sensory overload meltdown, or that they're feeling out of control themselves, um, or even they're just feeling really low confidence. I always say, what does this child need right now? And this is where, when we look at behaviour, usually when we're looking at behaviour, and all the questions often come around, what can we do when they're in that state? Mm-hmm. And I think it's not a lot. Yeah, so <laughs> There's true. not a lot that you can do. It's yeah. the stuff beforehand you can do a lot and the after stuff, but usually the before. But in that moment is looking as the adult saying, how can I, what does this child need right now? And the second question to that is how can I give that to that child? How can I be the best for that person, that child right now? So what do they need right now? And what can I be right now for them? And it's, you know, it's a tricky thing to remember, but it's an easy thing to do in the moment where if you can go, what does this child need right now? And then what does this child need right now from me? Then it makes it actually a really easy um, experience for you and them because they don't need you to keep yelling at them. They don't need you to go and put them in the corner and tell them to sit there and stare at the corner. They don't need that right now. You know, they, they might need a, an actual behavioural intervention. They might need a tool to help them calm down. Um, but it's having the skills to know the difference between, you know, what's the sort of, uh, how can I say, it? like the good, bad behaviour, which is I see sometimes, to also that my body's feeling out of control, my brain's feeling out of control. I don't know what to do right now. I need you. And that's what a lot of those times of meltdowns for kids are. They really need us to show them the way out of it. Yeah, I really. Sometimes that's the sitting. Oh, exactly. I like the quote that, um, you know, their chaos needs our calm. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I just put on um, Instagram today. I can't remember. What was it? Um, Be the calm that you want for your kids. Yes. My quote today on Instagram. Yeah. Be the calm you want for your kids because uh, calm sort of my you know, my thing that I'm always banging on about no matter where I am or and, and trying to find that myself as well. Um, being a very busy brain person, calm is uh, a bit tricky sometimes even for me. Um, but in that moment, the more calm you can be, the situation really easily dissolves um, and, a lot, and it dissolves a lot quicker. Whereas if you're in a heightened state yourself, yeah. if you're angry and you're frustrated, but also if you're um, confused about what to do, all of that, you can feel it. It comes up into your chest and it makes everything really tight and tense. Whereas if you're calm, it's like everything just settles. And it's such a good, lovely starting point in, instead of in that, that moment. Yeah, everything's going to be okay. 
everything's going to be okay. I always it may say, not feel like it right yes. now, but everything will be okay. Oh, and I always yeah. say everything's temporary. Like, so whilst this is yeah. happening right now, everything is temporary. Um, and could those be two questions that leaders of services could ask their teams as well? So if it's quite heightened, it's like, okay, what do you need right now? Or what does this child need yeah. right now? Yeah, that's right. And a lot of um, particular little kids, they don't have the um, ability to tell you what I need right now is this, right? But, um, and you definitely don't say while they're, while they're there in that heightened state, tell me, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? Because it just, it's just going to get worse. But the, you know, educators know their kids. They know, they know the kids. Um, and when you start to look at kids playing with their peers and when things happen, you know, I'm going to snatch that toy off you. Um, you know, I'm going to bop you in the head because you just took my, you know, my favorite toy. When you can start to look and observe around the, around the classroom and you go, why did they do that? Mm. And just start asking those questions, not like, Oh my gosh, they just did that. Like in a very different negative way. If you can actually take curiosity and be really curious about either the behavior of your kids. And that's what I say a lot when I'm in centers with educators is I try to spark their curiosity about the behavior of the child. Mm. So rather than looking at trying to fix it, be curious as to why first. Yeah. Because that's fascinating. When you get into that, that's a whole other Oh, it's so, it's so fascinating. fascinating. It is. And I think that often it's such a simple little thing that you can do to fix that, mm. that sometimes it can make us as adults or the adult in the space frustrated or thing, but actually breaking it down and looking at the reason that that's happening for that child. Um, and I liked what you said much earlier is that no child comes in to start their day feeling like, I'm going to annoy you today. I'm going to frustrate you today. I'm going to put all your buttons today like all they're thinking about is what's in front of them right then and there yeah absolutely they are and they're going I want my needs met right now yeah that's what you know I want my needs right now um and also too as adults we have to realize that our our kids don't have the tool the tools that we have um to help navigate their emotions or navigate their behaviors or even just social situations they actually look to us for guidance. And if we're not modeling good positive behaviors ourselves, and I'm going to flip this a little bit, if the educators of um, aren't showing these behaviors themselves, aren't being calm in situations, are always raising their voice, um, are chaotic themselves, then those, and for a lot of kids, they're in, they're in centers a long time. You know, they're in there a lot of hours a day. They're actually learning their behaviours through the ed- from the educators as well. So, um, and that can be a bit tricky when I say that to educators. They're like, oh my gosh, that's actually worrying. And I'm like, well, I'm glad because you need to have a look at your behaviour as well and think, am I being, I guess like that Instagram post I popped up today, are you being the calm for this child? Are you being a great role model for this child in, oh, that's how you behave. And some, of course, a lot of times they are. Most of the times they're being wonderful. But, um, yeah, there's nothing better than if a kid wants to, if they love going down the slippery dip or the slide, I suppose I should say it's slide. <laughs> I always say slippery dip. I feel like I'm 80 when I say that. The slide. Um, go down the slide behind them. Like, or, you know, make things fun. You know, don't, don't forget that I think particularly we go into – child I guess working with kids because we love that play we love that sense of you know freedom and I think we let as adults a lot of the busyness of our lives and a lot of the you know seriousness of our life 
actually stop us from being playful. Um, and yeah, kids love seeing adults be playful. They yeah. love it. They absolutely love it. And it can be really tricky. And I get it that in the childcare space, everyone is working really hard. I get that. And I think we uh, really underestimate the impact that our early childcare educators really have on the development of our kids over their lifespan as well, because we're setting up these really important foundations. Um, and I think once we can understand how important the role is and, but also the educators themselves can take that on as well and be confident and go, yeah, I actually do really have an important part to play. Um, am I being the best version of myself for this, for these kids? And that's just a, it's another little good check-in question to ask. (laughs) Oh, it's so true. And I think we need to constantly check in with ourselves because we are, they're looking at us for that support. And all you have to do is ask the parent, which teacher they play at home when they line their teddies up (laughs) um, and start reading to their teddies, which teacher are you today? Um, And it's funny, we hear so many stories because we've got a lot of teachers with accents and we'll have them come back and we're like, well, we know when they're speaking in that British accent, they're just copying you. (laughs) Um, But no, it is, we have to be mindful that they are they're copying they're a sponge they're picking up everything um, that we're putting out so it's really important to be that that really that role model for them Um, and Mm. I think uh, about joy like I think we're losing that a lot and it's something that I've been reflecting on myself like when I go to services and I don't know what it is Ange like I I don't know if it's like you know the younger younger people coming in that have those um those egos or those preconceived ideas. I don't want anyone to look at me. I don't want to be silly. I don't want to do this. But we're seeing less and less now in services with educators happy to dance with children, educators, you know, making a fool out of themselves. So when we do see it, it's like, wow, you're like a gem. You're amazing. But I always say like the more fun you're having, the more fun the children are having. If you're bored and you're sitting there doing whatever you're doing, if you're bored, they're bored too. Yeah, that's so true. Oh my gosh, I I am probably the opposite. I'm like, <laughs> but uh, but I do think that I love I love that word. Um, there was a lot of time. There was quite a, alongside working with kids. I've always done spoken spoken at conferences and yeah. uh, worked in corporate as well around helping people find calm. Who are you know uh, yeah, they might be middle CEO, they might be CEO level, middle middle management level, who have also lost their joy in their work and have also found that the overwhelm with their job has, has stopped them from being effective. So it affects kids, it affects adults. Um, but what I find with that that space, we actually, and, and this is where the first module I, when I, in uh, inclusion starts and when I work in centres, is actually asking them why they became a um, educator in the first place. And we, you know, it's not because they know that they're going to become millionaires in that role. It's got to be something else. There is yeah. something that, that drove them to do that. Um, and the more that they can tap into why do you want to be with kids? And, you know, my, my, one of my things with working with kids is I love the look on a kid's face. That real, um, you know, like if they're reading something, you know, for older kids or if they do something that they didn't think that they could do and they're little cheeks just like pop up under their eyes and they get like a little, I don't know, it's like a little, hey, like this little proud facial that they get. Yeah. That's what lights me up. And I want to see more of that 
And it's not the, oh my gosh, we can tick the five goals off the list or, um, you know, it's not the big stuff for me. It's actually that little look on a kid's face when I, when they, they sometimes will look and they'll be like, oh, did you see that? You know, they don't say it, but their face says it. And that's yeah. what drives me because I want kids to think and to do and to practice and to try that they can actually do anything and that they can back themselves to at least have a go. Um, and when they do, that's what drives me. And that's where I think a lot of that joy has been taken um, and has been sucked out a little bit. And the kids pick it up. I remember once uh, I was working with a boy. This was probably, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. And I was really tired at the end of a long day, um, really exhausted. And uh, he looked at me and he goes, you're boring today. <laughs> like, and I went, oh my god and then I just stopped and I thought okay I've got two choices I can either get cross at him for being so rude you don't speak to an adult like that or the flip side of that is just going well actually yeah I am and I said you know what mate I am really tired today and I'm so sorry I'm being boring for you and it's so let's do something that can help you know you know whatever lift my energy or something but I just loved that honesty in that moment where the child's just gone I know you, I know your energy today. It's off and it's boring. And that's what we want to be. We don't want to be the opposite and go, you're always boring. Today you're fun. Today's an awesome day because normally you're boring. Yeah, imagine <laughs> so that. We need to flip it. That they're just <laughs> picking those things out. But I, you know what? I loved how observant he was that he picked up on that in you. Yeah. And yeah, we can I'll, always I'll trust, we can always trust children for that too. Never, ever forget that moment because it was a real wake-up call for me and I, I was like, okay, I really need to be at my best for these kids and, you know, that's a whole other, I guess, world that I work in is around um, how do we actually look after ourselves in the space where we get a lot taken from us and uh, we don't always give it. Um, sometimes it you know, gets sort of feels like it's being sucked out of us, our energy is being sucked out of us or, you know, that there are unexpected things that pop up that, you know, we don't ask for. But how do we even despite all of that turn up to be our best, you know, be there for those little kids who are looking for us, you know, to be their, their guide and their support when mum and dad aren't around. Um, you know, I think we've – I really hope the listeners now uh, – if you're an early childcare educator to realize just how important you are in the lives of kids. And I, I really believe that. And I think that's why I love working in this, this space so much is because um, our kids are so important. You know, they're watching everything us adults do. And if we're being like this awful, tired, sad version of ourselves, then they're watching that and that's not okay. It's not fair. So if we can be that great version of ourselves who loves what we do. Yep, we have our tricky days, but we've got our team of support around us. Um, but we're here because we love what we do. Then everybody wins when they're like that. Um, but you do have to press pause and ask yourself some of those questions we've talked about today. Yeah, and I love those questions so much. And we'll do a bit of a recap. Um, just the last thing that I'm interested to hear, like if you have, and I'd love to delve so much deeper into like calm and now we, we have our calm and um, maybe another episode. And, um, but I'm interested, what advice would you have with educators around um, what signs to look out for for children that do need that early intervention and how to start that process and those conversations with families? Yeah, great question. Um, I think one of the first things is just to, um, I often say, 
that first, be curious. So have that curious watch and observe, but also record. So uh, write down what you've noticed uh, when you've noticed it. And I, it doesn't have to be war and peace. You don't have to do an essay on that child's behaviour that day, but just so you can start to see if there are actually any patterns because you might be going, oh, this child always melts down. Like they always has, have a big meltdown, but actually they've only done it twice in the last week. And is that actually developmentally pretty normal? You know, is that pretty much, you know, is that okay? Because some kids do just have meltdowns. They might've had a bad sleep the night before. So when you can actually record um, what you're observing um, and when, uh, what you saw, then what that does then is if you realize that the child actually is having, you know, maybe more frequent um, behavioral outbursts, if they're, you know, um, crying more more than what they normally are, if you're finding that they can't share, they're not sharing their toys or they're punching or they're kicking, whatever it is, when you have that evidence, and I don't mean taking photos and things like that, but you have the repetition or the, the body of support, then when you have a conversation with um, your either the person that's, um, I guess the director maybe is might be your next line of call talking to them and going, Hey, I've really been noticing this in this child. And this is, this is how often it's happening. What do you think? And then what that does is then that next step, when you talk to the parents about it, it's not a broad comment, like um, your child won't share. The one I hear all the time, Lisa, which is really funny because I feel like this is me. Um, he can't sit still. Yes. <laughs> yes. I hear it all the time and I always go, I can't either. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've done okay in my life. I can't sit still, but I've worked with it. Um, but yeah, that I, he can't sit still. Now, as a parent, if you have somebody come to you and go, hey, I'm really worried about your kid. They can't sit still. The parent goes, uh, okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So can't sit still term and then we I talk about this in this in the communication module that I can't sit still term is very different to when we're sitting at group time and the class is all sitting together and your son is running off all the time and climbing over the chairs when we try to bring him back in he goes to bite me that's a very different conversation to your son can't sit still yeah does that make sense? Yeah. Like what yep. is the actual issue? Like what is the thing that yep. you're actually finding in that moment? That's right. Exactly. And um, and that's a very um, specific conversation. And say if that child does, you know, the parent goes, oh, gosh, we've been seeing that at home as well. Um, then what it does, it has, it opens up a really nice um, relationship open communication relationship between the educator and the parent because now it's going, I've got it, I've seen it, you've seen it, now what do we do about it? Um, and then usually at that point, if it has gotten to the point where you've got had those conversations, then you've also got support from the centre to be able to give if they're going to a therapist or a GP or a paediatrician where you can go, hey, we've noticed this, and it actually adds a really good expert uh, view of the behaviours of that child rather than the parent rocking up to a paediatrician going, my teacher said the kid can't sit still. You know? <laughs> Imagine what would the paediatrician say? <laughs> and like, yes, that's age appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I shouldn't I shouldn't laugh, but mm. it actually does happen more than what you think. Okay. Um, or, you know, the child doesn't share their toys. Or when they're coming in from outside in the playground, they won't come in. We can't get them in. And so when you go, great, what are they coming into? Yeah. 
and it's like something that the child doesn't want to do or you go, well, that's why they're not coming in. So it's when you get that nitty gritty, um, I guess, is, is you get a little bit more detailed about what you're seeing, why you think you're seeing it and how frequent it's happening. Um, it just is a lot a better conversation and more detailed. And so what happens in those conversations if the parent's sort of not on board, they, um, I guess, referred to oftenly as in denial that there's actually a problem, they might be seeing it at home, but they're definitely not sharing it with us um, in the service. Like what would be yeah. the step from there? Yeah. So that happens often as well. Um, I, and I get that. And I think we have to understand that, that um, and I hear a lot of time, and this is where a lot of the, again, the communication between educators can get really negative and go, oh, that, that parent's in denial. This like, I can't believe they're not seeing it. And what we've got to also understand is home environment is very different to a school environment, to the centre environment, very different. Um, I see it all the way through schooling where parents go, that child is kicking and punching on the way to school. They get to school, they're an angel or the vice versa. They come to school and they're the most beautiful kid and then they leave at the end of the day and they just lose it. And there's a whole range of sensory reasons why that happens. But um, also sometimes it's the flip where they're not great at school but at home parents find them really easy. So what um, I guess going back to what I said in the last question was around um, in the last answer, sorry, which was around getting that body of evidence is just showing right down, be specific. Um, when you sit with a parent and you specific like that, it's really a lot more difficult. It's a lot more difficult for the parent to go, you're making it up. I don't see it as a problem. You know, it, it's really hard. I guess it's like giving data so when you give subjective evidence, it's subjective, right? But when you give a little bit more data, that sort of data doesn't lie. Um, and if the parent's in denial, that's well within their right to be in denial. It's their kid. Um, it sometimes takes a journey. It takes a couple of times for, you know, it might be one or two years in a row where the teachers um, or the educators have brought it up and the parent goes, okay, I get it now. I'm starting to see it at home. Um, you can't force, and I think this is actually a very, very important thing I want to say. Educators are not therapists or doctors, so don't pretend to be. Uh, it's a really big, um, I know that educators often see kids with difficulties and they might uh, you know, have risen the concerns and they might have been right, but it's not your job to diagnose a kid. It's not your job to um provide that diagnosis um, or to have those really hard conversations what what's important is is what you're seeing um, in the in the center and then referring it to the people whose job it is to do that and I think when I say that some people um, you know they might find that a bit, a bit harsh what I say but I think most of the time when I speak to educators they actually feel a sense of relief, relief yeah I'd say so yeah, mm. yeah and they go Oh, thank you for it's saying not that. On us. Because yeah. Thought, yeah, it's not on us and it's not on you at all. What's on you is to provide the best loving service that you can for those kids. That is a hundred percent on you. <laughs> yeah, and I wanna and I wanna feed in a little bit, Ange, because you know how you said earlier about going to the parent without the data with something quite vague. Like I also think as educators, we need to remember that families don't have the training to know what's age appropriate and what's not age appropriate. So mm. if we don't have the data and the specific data, 
because we are the professionals on early childhood development, then we're only meeting to their, like feeding their fears. Exactly. What a great point. Feeding their fears and parents don't need to be any more fearful about their child's development. Absolutely. I think that's, and I think that's where a lot of the, um, I talk a lot about that conversation between teachers and parents and parents and teachers and how those relationships can actually be like be really lovely uh, collaborative relationships or they can be really full of conflict, barriers straight up. And often it's how the educator approaches the parent and how um, if it's through a deficit lens of your child's not doing this, they're not doing that, they're not doing that, they're not doing that. All you can feel in the poor parent is their chest tightening and feeling like a failure themselves. Like, why have I, a couple of things, why have I never seen this? Yeah. Or it could be what's that classic, what's wrong with my kid? I hear it all the time. But it's also the the other side about if they are, you know, in not seeing it at home, going, oh, why is that happening here? And then they start, it just becomes a really defensive and, um, very really tricky conversation. So if you can go and go, hey, have you noticed this? And this is what I love. Um, I was actually telling the the one of the centres about this, one of the directors. I said it's uh, like a Teflon questioning. You think of Teflon like a like the frying pan, <laughs> frying pan. Yeah. yeah. So I call it Teflon questioning. So uh, you ask me a question, and I just comes to me, and then I flip it straight back off me, and it goes back to you. Yeah. So it's like saying, so I've noticed this. What have you noticed? And then you say what you've noticed and you go and then you might ask me have you noticed that and I'll go uh, yeah I've noticed it and it becomes like you just flick it keep questioning and go I've noticed that but have you never noticed that at home and so what you do is you start to have this lovely dialogue happening between you not like no I've never seen that at school it's like crickets, like awkward. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> you know? yes. Like, no, we've never seen that at school. Um, have you been? Have you seen that at home? Have you? Like, and it's just like this. It becomes something where you build, almost build, um, build the context together, rather than I'm here. I'm seeing this, and I just want to dump it on you and go, "Good job, like right. good luck with that." So Come you're like almost like, yeah, I love that approach, the Teflon. I get it. So it's non-stick. Yeah, it just like, yeah, it just keeps off. going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, love it, it love off. it. I'm stealing it. Um, <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, but when you said about the deficit, the the story that comes to mind is about um, how a doctor presents a diagnosis. Um, mm. And they did a lot of research about it. And they like, um, so let's say autism, for example, and they used to say, I'm sorry, your child has autism. And yes. there was a lot of re- uh, research around the way it was presented. And if it was presented in a deficit model, that the parent was like, oh my gosh. And it was that complete devastation where it was like, your child has autism. Like, here's the information, here's the support, here's what you can do. It was met with more, um, you know, openness around, mm. okay, well, this is what we're dealing with. And this is where I go for that support. Because as you said, like intervention, inclusion, it's come a long way. I think it's still got a massive way to go um yeah. but there what there wasn't any support so often they'll given diagnosis and not any step to take next that's right and that happens uh still now a little bit but I think now the NDIS being uh in our world is that 
it's happening where they get linked with people who can support. So there's a little more, bit more hope where parents go, okay, now I know what the next step is. And I think that's really important that what is my next step? You know, it's about, it's about going right now, I need to be here. So even going back to what we're saying about the behaviour with kids is that what does this child need right now? How can I be the best for them right now? But also now what, you know, that's a really important thing is to go, okay, now what? What's that next part that I can do for this child? So say if they, you know, had a had a moment where I'm just going to keep using meltdown because it's probably, you know, a, a child has had a really tricky behaviour situation. Um, you being calm with them, you supporting them in that moment. But, yeah, there, always, there does need to be a follow-up. And it doesn't mean you need to have a half an hour conversation with the child about, you know, their behaviour and all that. But you do need to sort of go, now what am I going to do with this? You know, now it might be what you're going to do different next time in that situation, or it might be what do I need to show this child that they could do? Is there a practice point that I need to support this child in? Um, do we need to do a little bit of a role play? Hey, when you did that, how did you make that child feel? How do you think that that child felt, I should say? Um, and that builds up a little bit of empathy. And actually saying that, I digress a little bit here, but um, with an educator, it was interesting. She was saying that um, she's having a lot of difficulty with a particular girl um, and she it was around sharing toys and things like that. Um, but she'll go up and tell people what to do, you know, not, they have to share and all this. And when we had more conversation and what we both realised through that, the two of us reflecting and being curious is we actually came up with, we don't need to teach her anything to do with behaviour in terms of behaviour management or sensory tools. It was actually um, empathy mm. was what the theme was that um teaching her uh, how to be empathetic to her peers was actually going to make a bigger difference than anything else. So she started to read books to her around empathy, like not, you know, how to be an em- how to build empathy as a you know, four-year-old. It wasn't that, but it was just things. And I said to her in the books, maybe have a chat to when you're reading, just say, how do you think that that dog felt when it was, you know, the parent, the, the owner left and just little things like that to start having more of an open conversation because not always what we see is the reason, you know, I think there's a, there, we have to, that's where that curiosity comes in. We've got to go backwards to go what's the underlying thing that's going on here for this child. Well, interestingly, yeah. is empathy a taught emotion? Oh, that's a whole nother thing. Yeah, that's a whole I'm nother. curious, <laughs> curious. Um, I think it's something yeah. we should be actively talking about in our environments anyway, empathy, kindness. I think they're really yeah. beautiful values and traits to, to have in your service. Yes, and I think that's where when a, when a service is really clear around what their values are, yeah. what, what what culture, uh, if I can say it like that, that they're trying to create in that centre, then it becomes a part of the teaching methods. You know, I'm not an early childcare educator, so I'm not going to definitely not going to preach around teaching strategies. Um, but when we look at values, when a, when you're a values-led service, it it infiltrates into everything that you do. And I think inclusion, when you're really clear on in, on values, and if inclusion is one of them, then you're so far ahead of the the ball game in terms of um, kindness and gratitude and and respect and empathy, because it's actually a part of uh, you know wanting to have people feel like they are included you know they're all the very core values of of inclusion yeah and I think that it would be like if you can on yours or mine or together
other, I think that we need to look at not even inclusion for children, but just inclusion as humans and adults. Because I Mm -hmm. think a lot of what we talked about today was, you know, self first. And I think that if people are not feeling that sense of inclusion, belonging, welcome, um, and all of those feelings, then they're not going to, like, that's not going to come down to the children either. No. And look, honestly, I talk about inclusion all the time, but if I was to really peel back everything that I talk about, which I often do, um, I often sit and reflect and go, well, what are the messages that I practice? What are the messages I preach? Um, What are the behaviours that I live and breathe through this? And I think ultimately when it comes to particularly kids um, who can be challenging, um, you actually just have to really care for that kid. Um, You really have to genuinely go that child really is a special human being they it doesn't matter if they're a child with a diagnosis without one you know it doesn't matter but actually at the core of it that child needs to feel loved they need to feel secure they need to feel that they can actually do whatever they need so they can have the confidence to step out of their their comfort zone you know it's okay for them to make a mistake if they do drop food on the floor um, because they've just started using a fork, then good work, mate. You're using a fork. Let's clean that up and let's try it again. And I think there are a lot of the things with little kids that maybe we're expecting so much of them to be older than they are um, that, I don't know, I just think these these little ones, um, it's okay. They're, they're coming through so scared of failure and so yeah. scared of trying. Yeah. Um, they're actually the things that we learn from most in the world and that's how we build our confidence. And, you know, I I don't want kids coming through scared to make mistakes because, man, there's a whole lifetime of making mistakes. Yeah, we need to celebrate failure. I I did this whole video. It was like, you know what, ask your child at the end of the day, what did you fail at today? And celebrate failure because, like you said, it's the only way we learn. But I know where you're coming from about children because in all of our documentation around the Early Years Learning Framework, it talks a lot about children being um, naturally confident and capable. And sometimes what that does, that restricts us with actually going back to the basics and being like actually you know what that is a teachable skill and I'm going to break that down for you and let's celebrate those steps with how to get there not actually get frustrated or I'm, I'm going to not say punish that's the wrong word but like reprimand or get frustrated at the child for not doing it when they don't know how. No and you know um, one of my learning frameworks that I work within in my company is the capable learning methodology and uh, it's actually about um what builds a capable kid? Like what, what are the elements of, uh, of capability? And that's actually one of the, that's the third module. And when I do face-to-face um, programs in centers is actually around that capable learning methodology. Um, it's funny you said that too, because my parent membership is actually called Calm Confident Kids. And um, so I see, and I actually didn't know that, which is funny, Lisa, that the two, I see the really two fundamental things for kids. Um, you have the belief that they are capable, but they also believe themselves that they're capable yeah. and that they have the confidence to try. And when, when they can do that and not be fearful of, of ridicule or hurt or whatever, whatever it is, um, God, we've got kids that will just have a go, you know, no matter what, what difficulties they're having, they know that they're supported, that they're, that everything's going to be okay. 
Um, and that's just what I, I don't know. That's what I hope for for our kids. So do I. And I heard the other day, um, I don't know, yesterday, today, whatever it was, I heard like the, this quote is like, you belong here. No matter what mistakes, mm. no matter what happens, no matter what you do, like you belong here. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Like you, but they could come back to this place of like, you belong here. Yeah. And even as adults, you think about it, Lisa, the feeling if you feel uh, alone, yeah. if you feel like you're not a part of something or that you don't belong, that's where a lot of challenges as adults really come in. Uh, that's where a lot of uh, people really struggle in their life and they long for that sense of belonging. So do kids. You know, it's just, you know, we've got we've got years of having to work through stuff that, um, you know, have got us to here. But, yeah, I think for, for our listeners, I know I feel like I could talk to you forever. Um, our little guys and girls uh, who are in your care, as the listeners that are listening, they really need you to be at their best, at your best, and they need you to just be caring for them, like just help them realise that they're okay exactly how they are, who they are. However they present to you, they're okay, they're safe and you're there to support them no matter what and that's all you can do. Yeah, and getting that early intervention is about that journey as well. Like mm. it's not about, you know, solving the problem. It's about that journey with help. We're getting you the support that you need and if you need extra support, no problem. Absolutely. <laughs> I have said myself, well, Lisa. there you go. Well, let's finish off. Angela Lockwood, how do people find you? Um, you've talked a lot about the program that you offer for early learning services um, and your on- yep. online program now. So how do people find you? How can they find out more about it? Yes, I'm not fantastic on social media. You can follow me on social media, but usually Instagram, I find Facebook way too overwhelming. Um, <laughs> but the best place is angelalockwood.com.au. Um, everything's on there. If you're really interested, I guess, thank you for letting me plug this. But um, my Inclusion Starts online program um, is really going through a lot of the stuff that we've talked about today. Um, I realise I can't be everywhere all the time. So the online version uh, is live. So it is me speaking to you. It's not a pre-recorded one um, so you can ask questions and it steps uh, people through four modules and it's a really around building um, the confidence and the knowledge and the uh, understanding of educators in working with kids around um, with additional needs and so they can walk away going I know I've got the support I know what I'm doing um, I'll try it they'll have opportunity to try and, and tap into me over that four weeks as well um, when's the program oh August so it starts the 21st of August I'm not sure if you'll you'll play this uh, shortly but yeah, it'll be um, 21st of August and we'll only have a couple of openings every year. So just keep an eye, an eye out for that. That's at inclusionstarts.com. Yeah, I think as we're sitting today, I think I saw the 26 days um, countdown ah. timer. So get oh, in there. Yeah, right. Join, oh my goodness. <laughs> join so that. I know. But what I loved about it is that you are that you are there. It's not a pre-recorded. It's you are there to support them. And I know we talked about how important that was for you um, to mm-hmm. make sure that you were there to support everyone along that journey journey as well yeah because everything's online now you can youtube stuff but i know that the youtubing uh you don't get that personalized um you know service but also person to go you can ask and go how hey, i tried this how come it didn't work um or how come it hey it did work what, why do you think that worked so well and it's that sort of stuff that really helps people um embed their learning um, but yeah, just thank you so much for letting me share that today because I'm really passionate about it. I just love the work that we all do with kids um, and any way that I can help support people on, on their own journey of that. 
I'm happy. So thank you. No worries. My pleasure. And thank you so much for coming on today's episode, sharing your wisdom, thoughts, ideas, perspectives around how we can create a more inclusive environment and find our calm. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. We've got to do a whole nother one on that. I know we do. We do. Definitely. (laughs) Let's get it in the diaries and schedule it. Um, Perfect. But www.angelalockwood.com.au. So check her out there. Um, She's got her new online program launching soon. So this is definitely one of the areas that we hear most from services that they they need that support. Um, So this is obviously an opportunity for your educators to get that support out there. So thanks, guys. And thanks, Ange, for joining us today. Can't wait for our next episode on calm thanks so much lisa thanks for listening to the everything early childhood podcast if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast please share it with others post about it on social media or leave a rating and review we read them all (laughs) to catch all the latest from me your host lisa brown you can follow me on facebook and instagram at lisa brown underscore platinum ed thanks again for listening keep making every moment count and i'll see you next time